Blog Talk Radio. Nefertiti Noel. Blog Talk Radio. I jumped the gun. Welcome to Relationship Wednesdays. I'm Dr. Nefertiti Noel. And I'm Darren Noel. And we are here tonight with um, Relationship Wednesdays, our weekly relationship uh, column. And tonight's topic is really kind of exciting because we have so many people coming in talking about their financial concerns and how it's affecting their relationship that we thought it may be a really good idea to give you the opportunity to ask some questions and get some some guidance about uh, finances and relationships. Absolutely. We wanted to bring a kind of a subject matter expert on the line. We're excited to have her on, Ms. Alicia Bedford. And Alicia is the founding partner of Bedford Brown Associates, LLC. They're a CPA firm out in the Chicago area. They provide services for tax, accounting, and auditing as well. They have offices in Chicago as well in Bolingbrook. Okay, so we're excited to have Alicia on, the, on board here on the phone for this conference call. Uh, she's also also a trustee for the DuPage Township out here in, in the state of Illinois. And you can get information on our company at BenfordBrown.com. Absolutely. So if there are questions, first of all, a couple of things. Even though I'm a a clinical therapist and Darren is a life coach and Ms. Benford is a CPA, if you have more detailed questions that you need answers to concerning finances and what to do, call one of us up and uh, definitely we can be able to give you more in-depth help when we work with you one-to-one. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the reasons that I I wanted to talk about the the concept of finances is because so many couples come in and say that finances are ruining their marriages and that their money issues are taking over their lives and they don't know how to handle it and they don't know what to do. And they're letting those decisions that they've made or those financial decisions that have affected them kind of take the joy out of being together as a couple. Also because with 50% of marriages – 100% 100% of people that get married, 50% of those people get divorced. Of the 50% that get divorced, 70% of those people say it was because of finances and income. That, it's a big thing. As we know, the economy is rough today. People are getting laid off. Um, salaries are being reduced. People are not getting promotions. So lifestyles are changing based on the economy, and that adds added stress to a relationship. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Alicia, welcome to our show, and thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Can you, first of all, can you tell me a little bit about what uh, Bedford Brown and Associates does? Sure. We are a full-service accounting firm. We are celebrating our 17th year in business. Um, as uh, Mr. Ah. Noel explained, we have an office in Bolingbrook and one in Chicago. Uh, we offer tax services, accounting services, and uh, audit and consulting services as well. Wow, fantastic, fantastic. Absolutely. Well, one congratulations on 17 years of service. That's phenomenal. Thank you. Absolutely. So, so Alicia, Ms. Bimper, I'm going to cut straight to the questions because we've got a few questions that people have sent out. Okay. And um, one of them says, should a young lady wants to know, should she do a credit check on her fiancé before she gets married? And I guess the question is whether or not, as an accountant, you think credit history is really important to whether or not two people unite in marriage. Actually, that is a very good question. Um, credit history is important in a marriage, and the main reason that it's important is because after a couple gets married, uh, your credit 
becomes combined in some fashion, which means if you marry an individual and a couple years into the marriage, your spouse decides that they want to file bankruptcy, well, that's also going to affect the other spouse. Um, and also going into a marriage, if you find out that your uh, your spouse uh, probably has a a credit history that maybe needs some tuning up or some cleaning up, it's best to know that beforehand so you can work on payment plans and other options. So as you move forward in your marriage and you want to purchase a home or a vehicle, uh, hopefully the credit history won't be a hindrance on either side. Okay, okay. Is there a way, Ms. Emperor, to to be married but for the two people's credit to not affect the other person? It can. It it usually really honestly only comes into play if one of the individuals decides that they want to file for for bankruptcy after they've purchased assets together. So, for example, if you, when you marry, if you buy a home together and a couple years into the marriage, your spouse says, hey, I think I want to file bankruptcy, since the home is considered a marital asset, that would become a part of that actual bankruptcy proceeding. So that is obviously, again, one of the main reasons that you definitely want to make sure that you and your uh, spouse or soon-to-be spouse discuss uh, your finances as well as your credit history. So just to be clear, so in that example that you mentioned with the home, if one of the spouses wants to file bankruptcy and the other one doesn't, because that that home is a natural property, that would affect the person who does not want to, that would affect their credit. It would because what happens is if one spouse files bankruptcy and the other one does not, that creditor has a right to go after the other spouse for uh, repayment of that debt. The one that files bankruptcy is obviously protected by the bankruptcy laws and the creditor can no longer pursue uh, payment of the debt for that one, but for the other spouse, if they have not filed bankruptcy, then they would pursue repayment of that debt from the other spouse. All right, okay. appreciate that. And so, let me further that question because I get a lot. I've got I'm getting a lot of Facebook questions and a lot of uh, texting about the the financial piece of it and uh, purchasing things together in bankruptcy. If if you find that um, a person has has poor credit, do you suggest that? they work that credit stuff out before they get married? I would suggest they do that just because it gives you stronger purchasing power after you're in a marriage. Um, You Obviously, everybody has history, so you bring all of that history into the marriage. And what could potentially happen is if someone – um, has credit that, you know, probably has a weak credit history, there's a possibility after the marriage that, that the spouse's wages may be garnished. And if that is the case, then, of course, that will then affect the household income as well. So I would definitely recommend that um, to people that are considering getting married that they definitely have that discussion about the credit history, find out what's going on, figure out a plan on how to Um, bring that debt down so, one, they have better buying power as they go to purchase marital assets, and, two, that they won't be at risk for having their wages garnished. Okay, great. Thank you for answering that. You know, as we were talking, one thing I was thinking about is running the credit reports, and it's actually, I I agree, it's actually probably a good idea to actually run the credit reports before you get married because so many times people may not even know what's on their credit history. So they may say, no, I have no debt or I have low debt, but they don't really know until they actually run it. So maybe both spouses actually or 
potential sponsor running their credit reports and reviewing them together so they look at what's really out there. Well, yeah, that's, actually, like, that's a wonderful suggestion. Absolutely. Actually, more than likely, though, people are just lying. I mean, that's what I found out. That, like, <laughs> you, I mean, they feel like, you know, they're just going to lie about it. And if the person loves me, then once we get married, we'll work it all out in the wash. I mean, to me, that's more than likely what happens. You yeah, and, and, and I, I can definitely agree that that is probably the case because, you know, like I said before, that's definitely a tough, a very tough discussion to have. Yes, it is. Right. It, it really is tough. I, I want to say let's assume the positive, assume, you know, everybody's well-intentioned, and let's just say let's have a friendly credit report check. Well, I mean, there's two things I did before I married you. I was like, let's do an FCD check and let's check out the credit. But right. we also get married in our 20s, and your credit in your 20s is very different than what your credit looks like 35, 40. Right. At 20, all you have is a credit card you got in college and you sign up, you didn't realize you had to pay back. Absolutely. I had about five of those. Okay. So, so that's the question. Here's another question coming through. Um, it asks, if, if a person marries someone that owes child support, is their income calculated when they have to pay that child support back? So in other words, if a man and a woman get married, does their joint income now become what has to be paid for child support? Okay, let me preface this by saying that that is more of a legal question than a, a finance question, so I'm going to do my best here. Um, the child support laws of each state govern what is considered um, income that is used in a child support calculation. For example, in the state of Illinois, let's say that um, a young lady marries a, a gentleman and he has a child support order, if um, there my understanding in the state of Illinois, uh, if the husband is not fulfilling his child support obligations, the mother, the custodial parent of the child, can actually file a claim against the, the spouse's income as well because it's considered household income, and that spouse's income could be considered in that actual child support calculation. Now, again, that's my understanding. But, again, that's more of a legal question as opposed to a finance accounting question. So, um, But, again, those laws vary by state. So it depends on which state you're in. So the question for that individual, what they would want to do is they would go back to their family law attorney and say, if I marry this person, would her, would her income be considered as a part of the child support calculation for the child that is not a part of that marriage? Okay, okay. So just for the person that, that Facebook that question, just also know that, again, as Ms. Benford is saying, she, she's an accountant, and so that's more of a legal question. Even though it's a, a question about money, it's a legal question about money. So thank you so much for, for asking the question and for answering it, Ms. Benford. I have a couple more questions coming through. Um, it says, do most successful couples have joint accounts or individual accounts, which is a question that comes up a lot in my office is, whether or not people should have joint accounts or individual accounts. For checking accounts. For checking accounts. For checking accounts. Checking accounts. For checking okay. accounts. And do you have a suggestion about that? I do. Um, it's probably more of a biased suggestion. I'll, I'll, there's my other disclaimer. I think that there should be at least a joint account that covers the household expenses. And then if each person chose to have their own individual accounts, where they have their quote-unquote, you know, flush money things, that, you know, if you want to go and get your hair done or your nails done or the guys like to go fishing, then normally you do that out of your individual account. 
That way, if you have the joint account that covers the household bills, you know that there's a budget, you know what things have to be paid, and then anything over and above that that, that, the, that the couples decide will be their slush fund money, they could then have those funds in an individual account. So that, in my opinion, would be prudent because then you always know that that joint account you're always going to have those funds there to cover the bills in case, you know, somebody decides they want to run out and buy a Corvette or something, and now you're not able to make the mortgage payment. So <laughs> you have those individual accounts for those needs. Okay. I agree with that 100% myself. I mean, having that joint account, because sometimes couples need to go back and say, hey, honey, can you go do this, take out some money, can we need to pay this bill or whatever, can you just run this over there? That, the spouse's name is not on the account. They can't take out the money just for emergency purposes. You know what, you need to have that mutual, you're, you're married, right? You're, you're one unit. You need to have at least one mutual account with both things on it. You both have full access to it, and you do what you need to do. But I think also, as you mentioned, having that little slush fund checking account that you don't need to go, I need to, I need to take out $10, I want to get my hair, my, for a guy, a haircut, or whatever it is for later, I need to take out $500 to get my hair done, whatever the case may be. They need to be have that bunch of money on there. Well, I'm always in favor of at least one joint account because if even though you you're married, you don't have the right to just walk into the bank and and do something with your spouse's personal account. So if you have a joint account, it gives you access to funds whenever needed as well. Right. And you know every and again, I'm not an accountant. I'm just talking about kind of how we do it. Is that every account is earmarked for something, so you kind of know when you're having a joint account what you can take out and what you shouldn't be taking out. Let me ask you something, Doc. On that the slush funds, and uh, Ms. Pepper, feel free to jump on this question as well. Should that be a this discussion of how much each co- each spouse is going to have in their slush fund? Like, you know what, my slush fund is going to be this, or they just kind of their own person. Well, I'm trying, so let me say this. I think all of the slush fund money should be mine. But, um, <laughs> but, but like, in reality, I think there has to be a discussion because I think that, first of all, I think it takes a mature couple to talk about finances, let me say that. Yes. And I think that, for at least for us, we had to grow into it because we got married coming out of college and, like, all of a sudden we both had, you know, big incomes that we were able to spend. So I think that's something that a couple needs to discuss and talk about. But I think I hear a lot of women and men tell me, I work all day and then my husband tells me that I have to have an allowance. Like, because when you earmark how much something can be spent or how much money can be spent on something, people feel like it's, it's giving them an allowance. That's a good point. And well, I don't think most. And, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. And I do agree. Um, I think one of the discussions that obviously needs to be had is how much will each spouse have in their flesh fund because you you will have at times where uh, the husband may earn more than the wife or vice versa, and so the wife may feel like, well, since I earn more, my flesh fund should be bigger. Should it be 50-50? Should you contribute to the household bills based on the percentage of your income? You know, obviously, if one spouse is earning $100,000 a year and the other one's earning 40000 then, you know, there's a big discrepancy there as to how much each spouse should contribute. So once you my, – my philosophy is let's figure out what all the bills are and let's make sure we have that covered, and then if it's going to be 50-50, it's 50-50. Uh, but also, obviously, saving as well, but, you know, to make sure that the slush funds also are kind of proportionate as well based on the either the income or the spouse's decision. Okay. 
And we did a show a couple of weeks ago when we talked about, um, it just happened to be about men that made less money than women, but we come, mm-hmm. come to find out the person that makes the least amount of money that has more control over where the money is spent. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Can we get a that, Doc? That they were, the research that we found was saying that the whoever makes the least amount of money usually has the strongest voice in how the money is spent because sometimes there's this feeling of inferiority about making the least amount of money and so wanting to have some a power to make a decision about what happens to the fund. So it just comes from that individual person's uh uh, self-confidence, right. financial Absolutely. self-confidence, whatever the case may be on that. So okay. I think, again, though, it's important when someone's getting married, not that you want to marry somebody just for income, but that you make sure you're matching up with somebody that has at least the earning potential that you have. I, I agree with that. I think that needs to be a conversation before marriage of what are your financial goals, you know, what are you trying to achieve career-wise. So, you know, someone expected, you know, I'm expecting to have a $500,000 income lifestyle and someone's looking for $50,000 a year job, and that's their kind of their career path, right. you have a disconnect. Those two have a disconnect. For example, for those of you that are not from Chicago, there's this big area downtown called the Gold Coast, like on North Michigan Avenue. Right. And when I first got married, my husband was an engineer, and I had taken a hospital job, and we, we definitely did not make the money to get a $4 million house, but I had booked this real estate agent, and we were looking at 5 and $6 million houses. I'm like, babe, this is, I mean, listen, this is fantastic, but this is really not our income bracket. And I was like, but we can do it. You know what I mean? Like, if you if you try hard and squeeze every hour out, we could do it. But I had a huge unrealistic, like, I have been walking past those houses all the time thinking that this would be one that I lived in, not even realizing that you probably have to make more than a million dollars a year to get a $5 million house. I think I think a lot of people have a misconception. Well, I don't say a lot of people. Some people have a misconception about money and coming to myself included. Like, you know, you watch TV or everybody's, you know, people who are working or living in offices, going out to lunch, expense accounts. Then you actually get in the work world, people are uh, driving, you know, hand-me-down cars, taking bag lunches to lunch. This is like the executive lifestyle that I saw on TV is presented, and that's just reality. Alicia, do you see many people, when you're doing taxes for people and talking about their finances, do you see lots of people trying to spread their income further than what it may actually be able to go? Absolutely. Um, I have seen it um, over a number of years, and when the real estate market kind of took a dive a couple years ago, that's when a lot of my clients really felt that pinch because now they're in a home that uh, is more than they could afford, maybe if one spouse lost their job, um, and now that they can't afford the home, but they can't afford to sell it because it's not worth as much as the mortgage that they purchased for it. So what I have ex- or seen or experienced with my clients lately is either loan modifications where they're trying to pay a lower interest rate or where they've lost the home to foreclosure, and now they have this forgiveness of debt that the IRS considers taxable income. Um, so I have definitely experienced that with my clients over the over the years of uh, of doing tax preparation work. Okay, okay. And and how do you coach people through that? What is your suggestion to people when they find themselves, you know, putting out more than what they're actually getting in? And they find themselves in a crunch. Where do you suggest that people start with rebuilding that financial future? Usually the first thing, I'm I'm just personally not an advocate of bankruptcy. Um, I can't say that it doesn't happen. I can't say that, that, you know, people are never faced with that opportunity, you know, or with that particular option. 
Um, but usually my recommendation to them is the first step would be to contact their mortgage company to see if they're able to uh, qualify for a loan modification and, one, possibly lower their interest rate, two, um, extend out the term of their loan, which would hopefully give them a lower monthly mortgage payment, or the third option, which some banks are definitely considering now, is um, taking a look at that property again and saying, okay, you have this loan on your home, you have a mortgage of $200,000, however, we did an appraisal and your home is now only valued at $100,000, so we will do a loan modification and forgive $100,000 of that debt to try to get you back into a position where you have, one, a home that you can afford, and two, that you don't allow this property to go into foreclosure or a short sale, and then that mortgage company is still able to keep that individual as a customer. That's a great point. There are definitely a lot of different options. That's the mortgage, your mortgage company, obviously every mortgage company is different, how they're going to work with you and things of that nature, but definitely recommend you reaching out and find out what the different options are for you with your particular mortgage company. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I have another question coming through that says, are there tax advantages to being married? Yes, that's a great question. Um, and the, the main tax advantage to being married is that you then qualify for the lowest tax table when it comes to filing a tax return. There are several tax tables. The first one is the, the lowest tax table is married filing jointly. The next tax table would be head of household, which you are not able to, to use if you're married. And then there is a single filing status and then married filing separately. Um, there's another one, but those are really the main four. Married filing separately would be the highest tax bracket. So when you uh, get married, you then qualify to file as married filing jointly, and that then subjects you to the lowest tax table when uh, the IRS is determining what your taxable income is. And what I'd like to point out, because I get this question a lot, is people say, well, I got married in June. What does that mean? Or I got married in February. What does that mean when I file my tax return? The IRS says whatever you are on December 31st is what you're considered being for the entire year. So if you get married on December 31st, then you're able to claim married filing jointly for that tax year. Um, if you are divorced as of December 31st, then you would change your filing status at that time. But the main tax advantage is that you're able to file married filing jointly um, and receive the benefit of being taxed at the lowest tax table. Let me ask you a question. In terms of married filing separately, I've always seen that. Why would somebody do the married filing separately? Well, I'll tell you why people, why my clients ask me to do it and why I usually advise them not to do it. The main reason um, that people normally want to do that is because they say, well, my, um, my spouse has uh, a back owed child support, and I don't want the IRS to keep my refund because of that, so they assume they have to file separately. They don't have to, and we'll, we'll cover that in a second. But a lot of times people choose to file separately because, one, they just they don't want to combine the income on a tax return. It's not normally what I would advise, and every now and then, and I would suggest this to your listeners, is you can ask your tax preparer to, to prepare the return both ways, married filing jointly and married filing separately, to see which one is going to give you a better benefit. 
90% of the time for me, it's been married filing jointly because when you file separately, you don't qualify for some of the other deductions that you would normally qualify for if you were filing jointly. One example would be if you if you have a child that is in daycare and you want to claim the child independent care credit, well, when you file separately, you're not eligible to claim that. Um, also, if you have a child in college and you're claiming an educational credit, you're not able to claim that um, if you're filing separately. So, And then some other deductions may be limited because of the separate filing status. So... There's, as far as in between, or it has been in my experience, that I have been able to look at uh, a married couple and say, oh, yeah, you're definitely going to benefit from married filing separately. It, it starts out being the highest tax table, so you're already at a disadvantage there. And to me, I've just seen it go downhill from there. Okay. Let me ask another one. I know there's a lot of, you know, software out that people can do their own taxes and things of that nature. Would you recommend someone mm-hmm. like go to see an accountant for to do their taxes? I would, and the main reason is two reasons. It it, it saves time. Um, I'll give you an example. I I had a new client that came to me a couple years ago. Um, He was actually amazed at how quickly I was able to finish his return for him because he said he had spent four hours on just one schedule. Well, obviously, um, being in the profession and, and doing returns on a regular basis and being familiar with the same software year after year, one, it, it takes less time usually for a professional preparer to do it. Two, um, if there are mistakes that the preparer makes when um, the, that taxpayer is notified by the IRS, they can normally ask for uh, an abatement of penalties because they relied on a paid professional and that professional made a mistake, whereas that's usually not a defense if the person prepares the tax return on their own. Um, And the next reason would be uh, most tax softwares out there, they go through like a list of questions. Well, obviously that takes some time to get through those questions, but if you answer any of those questions incorrectly, then that's going to obviously give you an incorrect tax return. Um, I've had some people come to me after they've tried to do the return on their own, they've figured out that they owed when they did it on their own, and then they've come to me, and now they're receiving a refund. And so there's just little common mistakes that the taxpayers make. The other thing is tax laws change all the time. They change literally throughout the year. And if you're not abreast of all those tax law changes, you may you may literally, as the commercials say, leave money on the table and not even realize that you're not taking advantage of all the tax deductions that you're entitled to. Okay. Those are very good points. So, so definitely, that's for our listeners. That's something to to consider. That if you have a paid professional, they actually sort of know what they're doing. I mean, that's the whole reason right. they're paid professionals. And even though you may be able to get the software for like eighty nine bucks and sort of submit everything yourself, you may be missing out on some of the nuances that that a tax agency can actually help you with. So, so another question. I've got several, and we only have time for maybe one more. So, this one says. What do you consider financial freedom? Oh, I consider financial freedom when you are completely debt-free and you're not living from paycheck to paycheck. Um, I have had uh, clients come to me and say, you know, um, Alicia, I have this opportunity to pay off my mortgage. I'm concerned, though, if I pay off my mortgage, I'm going to lose that tax deduction. 
and I tell them in a heartbeat, pay off the mortgage. You're never going to get as much in a tax deduction as that savings of not having to pay that interest on a regular basis. Um, a lot of times I even say to some of the, the newer married couples to learn how to live off of one income because with the way the economy is, you know, they may be faced with that at some point. And if, if you have a married couple that's living literally from paycheck to paycheck and somebody loses their job, then they're just one paycheck away from poverty for the most part. So learning how to, one, live within our means, obviously, would be one point of financial freedom. Being able to earn money and also save money for retirement um, is also obviously one of my definitions of financial freedom as well. And then being able to save for your kid's college education. So you always have to pay yourself first because in the long run, that's going to benefit you. And that would um, be obviously a good tool for financial freedom. Wow, good stuff, good stuff. One last really quick question. I mean, like, we've got, like, seven more questions, but we've got only a minute and a half left. Um, how much should, how much do you suggest or are you, do tax preparers suggest how much people should be saving for retirement? Um, they don't normally suggest how much a person should save for retirement. That's usually a discussion to have with a professional financial planner because they're able to look at your income, your debt, your children, your years to retirement, your health, and a bunch of other factors. What tax preparers usually are able to do is to help you figure out some of the best tax saving planning tools. So when an individual comes to me and they say, hey, I need to figure out how to lower my taxable income, my first suggestion is if you have a 401K plan on your job, you want to max that out. You don't want to just max it out at what your employer um, matches. You want to max it out at whatever that maximum benefit is. So let's say, for example, if you're able to put away $16,000 a year into a retirement plan, it's better to do that because you're not going to get that $16,000 dollar for dollar. You'll end up paying taxes on it. And sometimes when you're married, it could potentially push you into a 